Season 3, Episode 9, Opal Cats. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attack on their nation's capital on January 6, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. A bit of a departure from the usual format of the show of me sitting and reading a script, as we head into the second anniversary of the Capitol Insurrection, is a good time to uh, do another interview with a member of the open source intelligence community, a sedition hunter who's been working from the very start to help make capital ca- attackers face justice, who goes by the alias of Opal Cats. But before we do that, let's go to the numbers, sourced as always from Sedition Track. There have been a total of 924 individuals charged, an increase of six since the last tally. There have been 408 indictments, no change there. Six deceased, no change there. Two dismissals, no change there. One acquittal, same. 516 convictions, an increase of 10 since the last tally. And 346 sentencings, an increase of 15 since the last tally. The defendant profile of this episode is one Garrett Miller, hashtag Garrett Miller, who was convicted on December 13th, 2022. Miller, 34, of Richardson, Texas, has been held in pretrial detention at the Correctional Treatment Facility in D.C. ever since his arrest on January 20th, 2021. Now, that one data point should lead you to believe that he's one of the defendants facing the most serious charges. And, of course, you'd be right. Miller was charged with 12 counts, including assault on a federal officer, two counts of federal civil disorder, communication of interstate threats with regard to Representative Ocasio-Cortez and also a Capitol Police officer, interstate threats to kidnap the same Capitol Police officer, obstruction of an official proceeding, and the usual assortment of the misdemeanor charges that everyone who went inside the Capitol winds up facing. The original criminal complaint listed only four charges, including obstruction of an official proceeding, but not the FO charge or the interstate threatening charges. Uh, those are added later. The initial identification seems to be based on information from some unspecified referral from law enforcement, which they received on January 8th, and which pointed investigators to video that was taken inside the Capitol Rotunda and posted to Twitter using the account name of at Garrett A. Miller. I, I love that he uses uh, his middle initial in that. You know, Garrett Miller, probably a pretty common name, but very thoughtful of him to include his middle initial. Now, this is obviously not one of those really cautious defendants who took all these precautions. Miller didn't take any precautions whatsoever. As a matter of fact, you know, he doxed himself by posting this video on January 6th, and a lot of other posts as well. So that's some pretty solid evidence upon which they could base their identification. Uh, By the way, I did check, and uh, Miller's account isn't one of the accounts that has been restored by Elon Musk. Not yet, anyway. So Garrett A. Miller, not up on Twitter, although you can still see his replies. Now, a screenshot of the video in the Statement of Facts shows that It was captioned, quote, from inside Congress, and the video itself is 14 seconds long and 11 views at the time that the screenshot was taken. A subpoena to Twitter 
led them quickly to one Garrett A. Miller of Dallas County, Texas. The Statement of Facts reports that he had had many posts on Facebook referring to his plans to travel to D.C. on January 6th, including this post from January 2nd. Quote, I'm about to drive across the country for this Trump shit on Monday. Some crazy shit about to happen this week. Dollar might collapse. Civil war could start. Not sure what to do in D.C. End quote. Well, apparently he did figure out what they were supposed to do. Miller also posted selfies on social media on January 6th, including one taken with a person who has now been identified as Ten Jing Yang, age 60, of Chicago. Yang's own statement of facts shows many, many more images of Yang and Miller together inside the Capitol. Yang was charged on November 15th of this year, and from his statement of facts, it looks as though his identification was made on the basis of geofence data, although this may not be the original source of the identification. He also apparently applied for a, uh, a passport, and so there, there could be you know multiple agencies working together on that case. In any event, Yang faces five charges, uh, the only felony count being interfering with law enforcement officers during civil disorder, a charge that he allegedly earned by seizing an officer's baton. Now, it's interesting to read these two statements of fact side by side. As always, it's in the show notes. Uh, just because, you know, you can see a very early one and one, you know, just last month. And these are two related defendants. Now, they're only related in, in the sense that it appears that they met, they took selfies together, they chatted, they were there in the rotunda, but it doesn't seem like, you know, Richardson called this guy up from Texas and said, hey, let's meet in the Capitol or anything like that. It appears to have been a chance meeting, or if it, is, if it wasn't a chance meeting, they didn't make anything of it in uh, the charging documents for either defendant. Anyway, I'm going to avoid the rabbit hole here on Yang, but um, one of the most popular photos of Miller has Yang in the photo. So it's noteworthy that uh, essentially, you know, not too long before he's convicted, uh, Yang is finally identified and arrested. Now, there's also a whole bunch of other information in Miller's statement of facts, where Miller's posting on social media, claiming on January 6th that he stormed the Capitol. Uh, he claims that Ashley Babbitt was 16 years old, he calls her a beautiful soul, and he threatens to return to the Capitol again with guns. And he then directs a whole series of threats against Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, including one tweet wherein he calls for her assassination. He also mentions that he had had a rope in his bag on January 6th, and on January 10th, he wrote, quote, We are going to get a hold of blank, the USCP CP officer, uh, and hug his neck with a nice rope, end quote. And, of course, that winds up earning him another interstate communication of threats charge. The following from the Statement of Facts gives you a sense of Miller's prose. They, they quote rather extensively about his bragging on social media, and I think arguably you know, this also worked to help keep him incarcerated this whole time. All right, and I, I'm actually just going to read from the Statement of Facts, so 
I'll, you'll, you'll be able to tell which is the, the quote and which is uh, the text of the agent. Quote, on January 16th, Miller again got into a discussion on Facebook about the USCP officer and said the officer is, quote, not going to survive long, end quote. Miller claimed that, quote, millions of people agree with him and that the officer, quote, deserves to die. Quote, so it's sick hunting season, end quote. He then says that the woman who was killed, quote, was a sister in battle where bravery achieved victory and she paid the ultimate price. Dead serious, she fought fur, F-I-R, me, now I fight for her, end quote. He later claimed, quote, well, we got the traitor cop as a target, and as long as we don't shoot him, we don't get scared, accused of firing the first shot. He shot first. His death prevents civil war by liberal history teller arguments, end quote. Sorry, I slipped into my North Carolina accent. By November, subsequent work, thank you for your service, had identified additional charges, rounding them up to 12 counts that he was faced with in the uh, superseding and seeding indictment. So Miller's second superseding indictment uh, is November 10th, 2021. I'll link to his court listener page in case you want to go through all of his documents, uh, rather lengthy docket. Now, Miller's attorneys challenged the application of the obstruction of an official proceeding count against him. So that is actually why I selected this case. Um, yes, in part because he just uh, pled guilty, uh, hasn't been sentenced yet, but also because his case is very relevant to what's happening now in the D.C. Circuit Court, which is the appellate court second most powerful court in the country after the Supreme Court for the District of Columbia. So, but before I do that, uh, let me just sum up his case really quick. And again, there's, 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 you could, you know, I could do a lot more about the things that he's accused of doing. Um, but let's just wrap that up and then go into what his attorneys are arguing and what the in-bank panel of judges on the a circuit court is now considering. So, interestingly, uh, he had a, a bench trial scheduled in front of Judge Nichols, who's handled the whole case, on November 9th, but Miller apparently decided to plead guilty at the very last minute, and so Miller pleaded to uh, assault on a federal officer and interstate communication of threats. Miller's sentencing is set for February 23rd, 2023, and, of course, he remains in custody, and he'll likely remain in custody for a, a very long time with those two serious felony charges. I mean, even Judge Nichols isn't going to give him a slap on the wrist for those things. Uh, he has, in fact, you know, uh, whatever you want to say about what he's doing with the obstruction, uh, he actually hasn't been uh, lenient toward AFO defendants. Now, it just so happens that this week... Um, you know, the week before the issue of Hal Nichols' dismissal of the official obstruction of official proceeding charge comes before the D.C. Circuit Court, um, you know, again, pretty much the same time as, as he's pleading guilty. I mean, interesting timing. Um, maybe his, his attorneys 
talked him into it. I'm not quite sure. Um, but basically, I'll just go through what happened in the docket before I, I give my own editorial remarks on it. On March 7th, 2022, Judge Nichols ruled that this particular charge was invalid. And you can find uh, this opinion on Miller's Court Listener page. I also, it's up on my Twitter uh, in, in one of my tweets on this subject. Now, Nichols is the only judge on the D.C. District Bench who has dismissed this particular charge against uh, any of these defendants. So, that's, that's, you know, obviously he's not in step with the other judges. And, in fact... Uh, this this has been challenged in many of these cases on many different bases. Um, in addition to this, Nichols also d dismissed this charge against two other defendants, Joseph Fisher and Edward Jake Lang, who is, of course, one of the worst of the worst. Uh, I covered him in a previous episode, Season 1, Episode 8, The Worst. Lang is, you know, a guy who attacks officers with a baseball bat, and he's basically fighting there on the west side of the Capitol uh, for hours. So both Fisher and Lang are facing serious charges in addition to the obstruction of official proceeding charge. Um, you know, they're probably both going to go to a federal penitentiary for quite some time. Um, you know, so you could ask the question, well, does this really matter? Because when you look at the plea bargains, they've, they've set up. Typically, this, you know, unless this is like the most serious charge they face, they wind up pleading guilty to AFO and some other count uh, instead of obstruction of official proceedings. So it might not ultimately matter. Um, now, again, we'll see in a moment why it does, in fact, matter. In the Lang and the Fisher cases, Nichols cites his own decision in Miller. Uh, so this opinion is basically the same in all three of these cases. And so they've all been appealed by the government to the D.C. Circuit Court. Now, I could spend a rather long time on the argument that Nichols makes, um, but I think we're better served by a more succinct summary in this podcast. So Nichols spends a lot of time focusing on the meaning of the words, other, the word otherwise in the statute. Now, this, of course, is, is what judges do when they want to create new law from the bench. And cynically, you might say that as a Trump-appointed judge, Nichols seems rather anxious to engage in judicial activism on the part of these capital attack defendants. Uh, Nichols is very much, I think, substituting his own desire to reduce consequences for the members of the mob that attacked the Capitol on Trump's behalf for the will of Congress, you know, uh, against Congress. So this is exactly the kind of opinion, oddly enough, that Federalist Society judges often say is, is judicial activism. It's objectionable. Um, and yet, in this context, you know, I'm sure they, they have nothing to say at all. And again, for the sake of brevity, um, I've usually referred to this count as the 1512 obstruction charge. That's not technically correct. It's a Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Section 1512C2, um, but it's all the same charge for, for most of these defendants, so I usually just call it the 1512 obstruction charge. So here's the relevant section. Quote, whoever corruptly, one, 
alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, document, or other object, or attempts to do so with the intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, semicolon, or two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding, or attempts to do so, shall be fined under this title, or imprisoned, not more than 20 years, or both. So, again, as we've seen, it's a very serious charge. Um, you know, when people are facing this charge alone, they, they don't wind up getting 20 years. Uh, no, no one has, um, but typically, you know, that is the theoretical maximum sentence for this offense. So, Nichols is arguing that otherwise means that the, the second part applies to the first part. first part is all about documents and evidence, and so this otherwise obstructs also somehow applies to documents or in evidence. Now, again, I think the meaning of the statute is pretty clear. Subsection 1, that's evidence. Subsection 2, uh, any other means, right? Otherwise obstructs. That's that's any other means. Um, every other judge besides Nichols has seen it this way, but, you know, Nichols just tortures the plain meaning in a way that uh, really, again, is quite inconsistent with his supposed judicial philosophy. So, again, the Department of Justice has appealed this opinion, and so the matter is now before this three-judge panel of the relevant appellate court, the D.C. Circuit Court, which, again, very important and powerful court. It seems like a long shot as far as the defendants are concerned. It, this does seem like something that they probably should overturn. Um, on the other hand, you know, if the attorneys for Miller, Lang, and Fisher are successful, and Nichols' opinion is upheld in this case, this would mean that the charges against hundreds of other capital insurrection defendants would, in effect, be, be nullified, right? So they're going to be able to contest those charges, cite Nichols' opinion, and basically get get them, uh, you know, this part of their sentencing tossed out or, you know, have to just strike it from what is being charged against people who haven't gone to trial yet or pleaded guilty or been found guilty. So that's what's stake here, at stake. Um, this could, basically, I, I something, you know, there's hundreds of defendants, and this could wind up, um, you know, seriously impacting the amount of time that's actually faced by these defendants uh, who plead or are found guilty. Now, the, the panel is made of three judges, uh, Gregory Katzis, Justin Walker, and Florence Pan. Katzis and Walker are both Trump appointees, and Pan was elevated to the D.C. District Court from the D.C. Superior Court by President Biden. So at least two to one on paper, right? Two Trump appointees, one Biden appointee. Now, the saving grace here, I think, is that many Trump-appointed judges um, have already upheld the application of the 1512 obstruction charge against capital insurrection defendants. Reporting from the courtroom, and again, there's no call in line because this is an in-person proceeding, uh, during oral arguments, the reporters said that they judges seemed skeptical of the defense attorney's claims. They seemed skeptical of Nichols's argument. And there's also a misalignment, by the way, between what the, the 
defense attorneys were actually saying and what Nichols was actually ruling in his opinion. They would have been probably better served if their oral arguments actually chewed closely to Nichols's reason, uh, but that they didn't. Um, they kept asking questions like, you know, what the meaning of the word corruptly is, and they, they kind of got a little bit of bench lap. Um, although, again, I you know, that's just based on the reporting. Obviously, didn't listen to it myself. Uh, that, that's not before the court, right? And so, in some level, the these attorneys don't appear to understand how appellate courts work, right? They're not a trier of fact. They're just there to rule on this narrow question of whether or not, basically, otherwise, basically, that the grammar means that this section, this subsection 2, applies to evidence or any kind of obstruction of an official proceeding. So, apparently, again, uh, the, you know, the reporting is that the tone uh, appears to indicate that, you know, there's, it, there, the defendants are facing an uphill battle here. It seems unlikely from the questions that were asked that the, the panel is going to toss out these charges against these defendants and therefore all the other defendants in D.C. We'll see, though, right? We live in strange times. So I just wanted to mention that, and it seems kind of fortuitous or serendipitous that uh, Miller is winds up pleading guilty and also, you know, at the same time, they're considering his case. Finally, before we delve into the interview with Opal Katz, uh, just a, a heads up, the final committee meeting of the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack will be occurring on Monday, December 19th, at 1 p.m. Now, this is, uh, much like the last meeting, a business meeting, which means a vote will be held. And in this instance, it is to approve a criminal referral, or rather an unspecified number of criminal referrals, for an unspecified number of potential defendants. Of course, again, these would be considered by the Department of Justice, now in the person of Jack Smith, the special counsel who's been appointed and it would be up to him whether or not the uh, Department of Justice is actually going to move forward with those. As I understand it, anyway. Again, Garland has taken this out of his own hands. So this will question will actually be considered by Jack Smith. Hello. Hello, Opal Cat. Hi, it's Scott Kuhn, Capital Insurrection Report. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining the show. Oh, so, sure. I'm glad to be here. And first of all, I want to thank you for having the show. <laughs> oh, I, I appreciate it. I've been really uh, enjoying it. It's been um, quite a, a ride, and I, I don't know how long <laughs> it's going to go on for. Um, so, yeah, we had some technical issues there for a moment. I apologize for that. Uh, as, as it no turns problem. out, that, that no was problem. entirely on my end. It wasn't even network. Oh, okay. Or anything well, that's else. a switch. <laughs> right. No, well, we've got bad weather here. And unfortunately, uh, if we have bad weather, sometimes the internet uh, tends to, to go out. And unfortunately, yeah. um, I think it's probably my second. And so if I sound a little odd, that's probably. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I, w I was very happy to find your podcast. I don't know when you started it, but I found it uh, maybe when you'd had two or three episodes. And um, 
I was just um, really happy to, for one, that someone who had uh, training in um, anything we were doing, <laughs> such as political science, was um, was going to be involved in um, analyzing it because it's badly needed. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, mainly, you know, obviously not training in podcasting. I, I think that shows some <laughs> So, um, well, first off, let's let's get started. Uh, jump right into it. Oh. What motivated you to get into sedition hunting? That, um, you know, I felt, and I feel like it's probably pretty, probably pretty universal. Um, sorry. I don't know if you heard that. I got a phone call, of course. Of course. Right when we started. But. I, I, my dog is in the room, so I quick will start barking. Oh, okay. I did it out. It's fine. We're human. <laughs> um, it was um, more of um, a calling, really. I know that sounds, you know, ridiculous, but it was less of a decision than like, you know, almost a flashing light saying you must do this. And um, how it started was, I remember, um, I started maybe two or three days after January 6th. And um, I don't know if you remember, there was a man named Larry Brock, I believe. And he was one of the first, um, the first couple days, um, people are kind of focusing on a couple people, you know, everyone, you know, in the United States. So. And I don't know if you remember, but a lot of the violence was not really even known um, the first few days. Um, people were seeing, you know, a little bit of the violence. Um, they were seeing um, a lot of people inside the Capitol, um, but not much of the violence. So things like the flex cuffs, the zip, so-called zip ties, were real creepy to see I remember and he had some on him he was in the senate floor and um he had military patches and so I noticed um people were trying to identify those patches to see um to get more information on them and I just happen to have history um with training um in education so you were talking about Larry Brock. Now, yeah. if I recall, he was an Air Force officer or? That I don't remember. That I don't remember. But he was one of the first people focused on. I don't think he ended up being very important or doing a whole lot except uh, being in there with the flex cuffs. Um, but since I've been trained in literally that, you know, identifying patches, um, and doing it very quickly and very accurately. I've just had years of doing that for completely different reasons. Um, and I have um, an art degree. So I remember, um, especially from all those art history classes, <laughs> minute visual details, you know, remember a whole lot of them, you know, kind of whether I want to or not. So I just kind of um, almost got a message <laughs> telling me I must do this. I am trained to do this. Or, you know, for whatever reason, my particular skills are going to help this. And so, um, of course, it didn't, end, it, it, my specialty didn't end up, being, end up being patch recognition necessarily, but that's what started it. And then, um, then I saw another thing the first week that really brought a lot home to me and helped also, which was um, I saw... Again, you know, this is before people had seen a lot of the, the worst violence and um, 
I saw an interview with two ladies that, you know, you'd kind of think of as almost little old ladies and they had been there and um, they were asked a few questions and they seemed, you know, pretty normal and sane. Um, and a part of you wanted them to be normal and sane, of course, even though I think I could already tell that these people were not normal or sane. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I realized all of a sudden just how dangerous every single one of those people were and what was in their mind and how they literally wanted to kill people and had no problem with it. And um, I kind of felt a responsibility to document that and to hold all those people accountable and, and very importantly to let people know, you know, what they were like um, for the future and for, you know, the knowledge of January 6th. So, um, and it kind of dawned on me all at once just how bad it was and um, what these people are like, what they had done and, and the other things they must have done that day that we haven't seen yet, if they had that mindset. Um, and that is one of something I want people to, you know, still realize is that, um, you know, it's disturbing, but, um, but I do want people to realize that the majority of the people there would have had absolutely no trouble um, either killing the politicians and or their staff um, or cheering it on or, you know, helping it by passing weapons, et cetera. Um, and they certainly proved it uh, by cheering on the beating of the police officers for hours on end. Um, and and I want to point out that uh, a lot of people have seen um, the t so-called tunnel assault um, where some of the worst fighting happened um, and I want to emphasize that that fighting went on for hours at that tunnel and that entire level the uh, lower west terrace <laughs> when I get the, the terms right the very complicated grounds that day um, that entire level was set up for the inauguration already so it was literally a natural amphitheater and um, so that tunnel was kind of on stage with the fighting right there, the very vicious fighting. And uh, all around were hundreds and hundreds of people watching it, cheering it, uh, literally singing the anthem, praising God, uh, passing weapons to use, anything they could get their hands on. Um, and also there was a level above that had stadium seating and they were also watching. So it was really um, like some kind of very sick uh, medieval kind of gladiator type entertainment. And uh, they, uh, yeah, they would have, they had no trouble um, and wanted people to be killed. And, and it's very literal. <laughs> and I think they proved that quite well They they um, that day. So I do want people to understand that it wasn't your normal civil disobedience protest. Uh, it was a very specific goal to get in there, kill them and take over the government. <laughs> and also, I, I think that that raises an important point. I, we tend to focus on the people who are actually fighting inside the Laurel of West Terrace Tunnel. But that would have been visible and audible, certainly, to thousands and thousands of people who had made it into that area. And yeah, they, they knew. <laughs> yeah. And so there, they there knew are many. What's going on. Right. And yeah. so 
but when you you weren't necessarily and it's kind of interesting listening you talk about this um focused on the the sort of the, the criminal the criminal liability right like pressing charge i mean the safety of the yeah. community was was getting these people off the streets a major concern yeah, um, that's one concern. Um, but even that, um, you know, they're going to come out at some point. Um, the sedition energy, yeah, we, and also because I, we are um, a very good source of original source um, information on countless right wing extremists that have, that are usually in the news, and yet their January six activities have not been reported on. Um, which is uh, quite a loss because it, it, the public really cares about it. And it's one of the few cases to hold these people accountable. Um, so, um, and we've done a lot of work documenting it. Um, and we have, um, you know, it's extremely traumatic work, you know, most of the time um, when people do this work professionally, they'll get trained mentally to deal with it. We've been going over, um, you know, as close as you can get to the worst violence, you know, and we'll do it over and over. And uh, we, I think we've all had some personal cost and, you know, mental cost at times. And uh, in, one of us even um, had a stroke due to it. That's what their doctor said, is that they're, um, they had had past abuse and it was um, kind of triggered again by seeing the footage. And, uh, and uh, there were times, that, especially early on, like we would work all night, you know, and we wouldn't even say we were working all night. I would just notice that other people were working all night, too. Um, so it was um, the only way that I th that this was um, possible, arresting all those people and holding them accountable was was this work because they just literally don't have the manpower in the Department of Justice. Um, and. And the third thing is, I do think it's just a matter of, you know, a little respect. Um, we did, if you're reporting on our work, especially if you're making money off it, um, you know, just literally once, please mention, hey, the Sedition Hunters volunteer community did a lot of work on these cases. And I do want to give them credit. Just literally one time in years would be nice. So, yeah, it's. It's, it's strange. It's a bit of an elephant in the room, I feel, uh, Sedition Hunters, but also January 6th uh, overall, because um, I think reporters and researchers, it's not really in their usual wheel, wheelhouse. And uh, even though we have a lot of information, like extremely well organized and literal spreadsheets, color coded, <laughs> um, it's not being used much. Um, and I think I think it's just overwhelming. And I also think it's just, like I said, not in um, the reporter's wheelhouse of how they usually do things. Um, and I also, I would say anyone in journalism school, if you have any uh, inclination toward fascism, <laughs> disinformation, extremism, please study it uh, because we need, we need more journalists. <laughs> so one thing I was curious about was um, if you'd notice anything about this, the, the story of perhaps January 6th and um, sedition hunting that you don't necessarily think that the media has really gotten. Um, yeah, <laughs> there's, I think um, there's a lot of about January 6th um, that I feel has been underreported. 
um, which I could get to later. Um, but the sedition hunters um, themselves, there was a couple articles on us, I think, at, at the very beginning. But since then, there hasn't been a lot of mention of us. And um, I think it's probably a, a hard thing to understand for people. And it's definitely not in in their usual wheelhouse of um, sources and reporters and all that. Um, and, but at the same time, I think that, uh, I think that we should be mentioned more uh, for a lot of reasons. I think there are a lot of people that do report and research on uh, January 6th and um, haven't quite given us maybe any credit. <laughs> and I think it's important um, for a few reasons. Um, um, but, but yeah, the, uh, some people have been screaming about how dangerous these people are for many years, um, people in their local communities and have been ignored, um, for a lot of reasons. Um, of course, you know, the white right wing extremists have not been treated anywhere near as seriously as they should be, um, both in courts and, um, the media, et cetera. And um, I hope that's something that will change because they're um, extremely, extreme threat to our country. So I also wonder, so you were pretty much there from the beginning. How much did, how did sedition hunters really begin collectively? That was um, really, I think it was a pretty remarkable thing, a really remarkable achievement, if I may say so, um, because it just happened organically. I think uh, it was about, at the beginning, it was probably uh, just between 200 and 300 accounts. None of, you know, we didn't know each other at all. We still don't, you know, most of us are still anonymous. We often don't know if it's a male or female, even though, you know, we might even be friends with them by now, but all anonymous. Um, of course, January 5th, none of us planned on anything like this happening in our life um, or in the country. And yet uh, somehow um, we came together and we started to organize. And I do wanna um, give a big credit to uh, the Sedition Hunters account and the Capital Hunters account. And both those accounts did um, help a lot with the organizing and uh, made their websites that helped organize, but there was still, there wasn't any one person or account running things or organizing it. And yet, um, and most of us, we didn't have any inkling we'd be doing it. We also um, hadn't done any OSINT work either before, um, but still within a couple weeks, and this is what is, you know, I'm pretty proud of. We had, I mean, we had laid out very strict rules, very strict standards, so we wouldn't get any information wrong, put out bad ideas. Um, we came up with system to of hashtags to organize the information, um, and um, it just kind of started on its own um, out of necessity, and I think all of us could tell how bad it was going to be needed once we started to see just how many <laughs> violent people were there, just how many and how dense and difficult the footage was to go over. Um, I think, uh, and so it just really happened organically and, um, I'm still kind of amazed at it. 
Yeah, and the, it's interesting. Like, political science, we call this a collective action problem. And so somehow one of the solutions to it is a, an organizing agent. And it sounds like sort of leadership emerged, just part of the process. Yeah, the um, the capital hunters and sedition hunters. Yeah, and I'll always be grateful. I don't think it would have been possible without that. Um, but we were really just doing it all uh, on Twitter ourselves, mostly um, publicly. Um, and the crowdsourcing, I want to emphasize, is very crucial to the whole thing. It's not just the OSINT. It was the crowdsourcing. Um, because uh, the information is so dense, it's it really mind-boggling. Um, you know, we we have somewhere between fifty and hundred thousand pieces of footage archived, all from like completely weird sources, of course. All we had to find, and um, the footage is so dense that even at twenty-five percent speed, you know, in some of these battles, um, go so fast, and there's so many people involved, and it's so tight with people um that it could take um easily you know three hours to go over um 15 seconds and uh because of that you can't really um say oh i want to find this i'm going to go find this and i'm going to look at the footage till i find it and that does not work and that's why the crowdsourcing is important because usually when you're trying to when you're going over something, you're trying to find something or have a certain uh, goal, you're not going to really find it. You're going to find a lot of other things that you don't necessarily even understand, know about, or have time to deal with. And so then you would take those things and put the hashtag in and then someone else in the group, that's what they need. They will find it because you found it and they will have time to put that piece together. And uh, there are many you know, there could have been one piece, there may be one piece, like even a piece of a word on someone's shirt or the moment of impact or something like that. And someone might find it six months later. And that one piece um, is what was needed. And because they found it and they hashtagged it, even though they might not have known how important it was, suddenly it falls into place. So the, the crowdsourcing was crucial because of the, the amount of information involved. It's weird how many of them were sort of personally identifying and or locally identifying and or representing different groups. Um, yes. Uh, apparel, you know, employers. Yeah, they're, I was going to say they're very personally identifying. Yeah, many um, wore their employer um, shirt or jacket with their employer right there uh, with their phone number and everything. Um, and a lot of them, I think, were... Uh, as a source of pride or trying to get back old glory, they would wear, of course, their um, military patches or even their um, sheriff patch in one case. Um, and so that helped too, because they couldn't help but kind of, you know, look as cool as they could or whatever, you know, and wear all their badges and stuff. And so that helped too. Um, and then there are others that completely cover themselves up the entire time. Um, but that's part of the whole um, scope of how difficult it was is that they all came from different places all over the country. <laughs> and so it wasn't like they're all from DC. So that made it even more um, difficult was we had to 
to track them and, and find clues and find where they're from. Um, so. It shows different levels of meditation. Presumably, if you brought your eagle mask or your, your giant gator or, you know, yeah. you knew you were going to do something versus some of these other people who, you know, Doug Jensen just wanted his QAnon shirt on TV. <laughs> right, right. He, he just was trying to get an ad in for QAnon. <laughs> um, yeah, but he still wouldn't have minded if people were killed. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, the only people I might give a pass to are the people, a slight pass, is people that walked from the rally to the Capitol. Um, not that went went past the fences because when the, the entire Capitol grounds almost were surrounded by keep out fences, they weren't. It wasn't open to the public because of um, things going on that day. Um, and it was real obvious by you know you see all the strewn fences, you know you know that they were trying to take over the government, you know all that. So I don't have any. I I for one would like any everyone who crossed those boundaries to be um, charged because. Um, and that's something we try to very hard is, is we don't want to, um, like we, I wouldn't want this to happen for uh, your average civil, civil disobedience. I wouldn't want a group of citizens to like sit there and try to arrest everyone if it was your average civil disobedience, um, not a rebellion, but because it's a rebellion and everyone there, I mean, there may have been a couple, but everyone there knew exactly what was going on. Um, everyone that crossed those lines, it was obvious they were um taken over violently even if they didn't see it happen um should be charged but the ones just because if if you the president of the united states did tell them meet me there you know go there and so if i try to uh try to play devil's advocate i could see okay so maybe they thought he actually had a plan and was going to meet them there and there wasn't going to be any violence you know but um that's as far as I go there. Yeah, and, and, and many apologists for the, the behavior of the insurrectionists will say there's fourteen thousand hours of material that hasn't been released. Yeah, I doubt and, that. I bet we've seen it all. And um, if it was released, I guarantee it wouldn't prove anything. They say it's proving. We've seen everything. We've seen it all from every angle, every second. Um, there's no evidence of anything they're saying. Yeah, so go ahead. Go ahead and release it. We'd be happy to see it. <laughs> so you're saying one of the things that you think hadn't been reported on as much? The rallies. Yeah, this is a good example. It, it's kind of an analogy where, you know, we've done all this investigative work on the, the criminal cases. And um, I will say not all sedition hunters even believe in work at all. You know, I don't want to say we're not a monolith at all. We have very different philosophies but um most of us don't mind you know sending a tip in um and they also luckily over pretty quickly um as i was knew would happen uh, on a necessity they realized um um the department of justice how good our information was and how accurate and we had the sources so they started looking at our stuff themselves to get uh, to help gather evidence um but so they they've done a course that the Department of Justice has done a huge amount of work on the cases, you know, and that combined with our work has helped a great deal. But in the same way, um, what we call the VIPs, which is kind of the public figures, um, we 
our usual standards were, you know, um, you can kind of make it public if they had crossed the grounds and they're kind of an official VIP if they crossed into stress uh, restricted grounds, um, which a lot of them did um, that were VIPs at the rally, that were speakers at these rallies. Um, but they won't um, probably be necessarily criminally charged with anything. And so their accountability will be publicity. And that's where this, um, that's where I get frustrated with the lack of coverage because um, these rallies are a good example. Like we, we do not, we've, we've documented them. We have them on film. We know who was there. We've kind of um, transcripted a lot of the speeches, but we literally don't have the skills uh, to, to investigate more. Uh, you know, we need, um, and I know it's, it's hard, hard, a hard job. And there are many, you know, it was a hard job to be a reporter. Um, but that's where we need the investigative reporters, people that know how to follow money, that know these people's histories, their um, connections, what they're doing now, you know, to put it all together. Um, how did they, the buses, you know, the busing, the rallies, it's a huge subject um, that, I don't think we can do all by ourselves, sedition hunters. So that's where um, I wish there was more uh, focus on it. Like just for instance, uh, there was a rally called the Freedom Rally and it was uh, January 6th, just Northeast of the Capitol. Um, it was run by um, COVID and election denying grifters, uh, Ty and Charlene Bollinger um they they also had a lineup of some very seditious speakers uh i won't mention any names but very seditious speeches uh they they were uh, quite pro insurrection and after it happened they cheered it on um and many uh some of the speakers and also many in the audience went you know straight to the capitol including ty bollinger uh went was at the capitol on restricted grounds and I've literally never heard their names in any reporting. And that was a giant rally a block away with well-known people there. Um, and that's just one example that that has not been reported on at all, um, which is, a it's, a it's unfortunate, you know? Um, and I think I'm trying to be patient. I, I spent a lot of time kind of trying to get people's attention on this stuff. Um, I'm kind of um, regrouping after two years and I see, because um, I really wanted reporters to report on it and many did, I will say, there was some re really good reporting. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned it, but Ryan Riley, I do want to give him a credit uh, because he, from the beginning, understood. Um, he's, he's in, I think he's with M NBC now. He was with Huffington Post um, when we started. And uh, he has always given us credit. He's un kind of understood what we've contributed. Um, I think even he doesn't might maybe understand how much, but um, so I want to thank him for that. Um, can you still hear me? I sure can. Yeah. I, okay. I was yeah and another, I just want to give another example. And because the reporters that have spent the time and I do understand it's really hard to do. It's so much information and it's overload. Um, but we are there to help. And um, the ones that have uh, get uh, pretty popular and the public is extremely interested in this. They're still very interested. 
you can tell by the replies uh, to us. You can also tell by how popular the January 6th committee hearings were. Um, and one, just one example is, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's Jordan uh, Lyles or Lilies, L-I-L-E-S uh, for Snopes. Uh, he he wrote um, what I think would be the, is the best example of one of these type of articles. Um, he took the time and did a real in-depth article on Tina Forty. I also don't know how to pronounce her last name, whether it's Forty or Forte, but she um, is an already infamous uh, extremist and she ran against AOC this year. And um, Jordan took the time to look at her uh, and she's an influencer. She has um, you know, a lot of followers and social media messaging is another thing I don't think has been covered enough. And he, he took the time to look at her social media messaging, look at how many um, likes and retweets they got, um, all the planning she had done, the live streaming she had done. And then he took the time to um, find out what she'd done January 6th to ask questions. You know, he, um, he used a lot of what I had found on her. So I'm a little biased, but, but, um, but then he, he found stuff even we hadn't found, uh, which is saying a lot. <laughs> and he took it all and, and wrote, wrote it up the way, you know, that I don't have the skills to do the way that reporters do. And um, it was a just an excellent, excellent article. And it got to uh, top 15 on Reddit, which is pretty high on all of Reddit. And so it pays off, you know, and um, after two years, I do feel um, the public is still really interested. I, I, I'm kind of changing gears as far as um, reporters and researchers, uh, because um, I haven't gotten a whole lot of luck that way. But um, I think it's something that we're still going to be documenting and figuring out kind of how to present the, the information uh, for years to come. And we may even come up with a book or two ourselves, Edition Hunters, which has been talked about. <laughs> so, You think that would also be kind of a collaborative project? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. They're very different, you know, groups and personalities, you know, so uh, it's not like one big happy family that all thinks the same. Um, but and that's almost even more to our credit. We've kept it going. We've, you know, cooperated and everything. Um, there's, you know, it's really serious stuff. You know, for instance, if if you think a piece of information shouldn't be public until someone's arrested and another person thinks it should, you know, um, that's one example of how it, it is kind of important stuff we're talking about but um i think someone has thought about writing it more on the sedition hunters um experience um i personally feel the need to just literally document it all and have somewhere where people can go and just look um anytime they want and that has been done on websites but it's still not um complete so yeah the way i look at it is we're we're I like to look at it in terms of Weimar Germany. And mm -hmm. so we're somewhere between, I don't know, it's like that was our storming of the Reichstag, you know. And when I think about, like, yes. you look at the resistance, um, you don't have a lot of good records. And so it's, it's fascinating oh, yeah. kind of being documented yeah. in real time for history. That's the thing. And you realize that, that unless it's actually written 
reported on by an actual reporter in the public record, it could all be lost to history. It doesn't matter how much sedition hunters do, you know, and um, yeah, you kind of just look up what, what was in the newspapers, unfortunately. Um, so. A couple of minutes ago, when you're talking about the Bollingers, I did also think of uh, another group, uh, was Kenny and Keith MAGA dragged the interstate? Yes, they were actually supposed to speak at the, their rally, the Bollingers rally, and I can't remember if they spoke or not. You know, of course, the rallies on January 6th were cut short for obvious reasons. Uh, but they, yeah, there's, there's literally hundreds of stories just and evidence just waiting for people to report about. Uh, but yeah, they're two. Um, now I get them mixed up. They're twins. Um, but one of them um, is the, uh, his organization is the drag, the drag the interstate, the MAGA drag the interstate. Um, and they are the organization that was accused of trying to run a Biden bus off the road. Um, and he was uh, very involved in the insurrection. He um, still here. Hello. Yep, I'm still here. Oh, sorry. Yeah, he was. He he um, made a lot of inciting speeches on Bullhorn. Got people inside the Capitol, and then made more speeches on Bullhorn. And then his. Uh, and like I said, it's. I think it's. I can't remember if it's Keith or Kenny Lee, but I think Kenny is the one I dragged the interstate. Um, sorry, I never get phone calls. I get them, of course, the entire time I'm with you. But um, And then his brother um, is involved in Latinos for Trump, which is a whole other organization. Um, the whole, what I consider the middle management, you know, I don't know why I think of it that way, but the whole thing with the organizations is... Um, needs a lot more investigative reporting. And I think the January 6th committee has done a lot. You could tell by who they mentioned in their, um, um, in what they've shown their clips. And I've been so glad to see, oh, they know about that and that person and that person. But everything is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and they all, many were involved in busing people there in um, the demonstrations in November and December. Um, there's a whole lot there. Um, and also, uh, that's for Trump were there. And of course, LaMotta and Macias were there at that Freedom Rally. Um, and Macias was actually in the, the garage meeting as well. Yep, yep. And LaMotta and Macias were on bail. Um, sorry, not bail. Um, they had already been arrested for um, having guns in their vehicle outside the Pennsylvania Convention Center. Um, so they were um, already in trouble when they were there. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's just one rally and there were um, several rallies. Um, and then just the whole rally thing has not really even been mentioned and yet is a pretty big part of it. So. Um, I also think um, I always just need want more context, you know, um, on especially the court cases when they're done or when they're going, you know, don't just say this person did that. If you know they're a proud boy or an oath keeper or a three percenter, if you know they um, 
have violence in their background, um, please mention that because that's the whole thing is it's all um, about the interconnectedness. It's nothing happened by itself, um, whether by social media messaging or, um, and what is it? I think you call them paramilitary gangs instead of militias. Right. I, I know militia, I don't like that word, but I'm never sure what to use instead. Um, I, I have to call them that because the, the word militia appears in the second amendment. They like to use that word to give them constitutional legitimacy oh, yeah, that they, they don't deserve. But militias are creatures created by the state. These are volunteer organizations <laughs> that don't take orders from anyone. You know, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I believe it was Caldwell who said, we don't, we don't play by the rules. We don't take their orders. It's like, that's actually not what it says. <laughs> There's all these statutes governing and they don't follow any of them. Right. <laughs> um. Another like another context is a lot of them are uh, COVID deniers, um, to the point of making money at it, like the Bollingers or Simone Gold, um, John Strand of um, uh, America's Frontline Doctors, on uh, it, huge COVID denying grifters, um, but also Oscar not project. Yes, exactly. It's um, and they're also. Uh, COVID uh, people like um, Siaka Masakwai, who was an actor, maybe he still is, but now he's more of a, a right-wing extremist. He um, was there, um, went into the Capitol, um, and he was one, and I believe another insurrectionist as well, but he was one of the groups that literally got Dodger Stadium shut down during a vaccination um, event for the public uh, by his domestic extremism. Uh, domestic terrorism, in my opinion, when you get a uh, public service shut down. Um, um, so, and many of them, especially in Southern California, like it's on and on uh, how many insurrectionists were also harassing people about wearing masks, were doing these anti-mask protests and um, with Proud Boys especially, you'll see them at the school board meetings, at the drag queen, of course, um, story hours, just, it's all just excuses to be violent. It, it, <laughs> it really is. It's um, even the COVID denying, you know, is almost excuses to be violent sometimes. Um, At this point, it's, uh, I think for them, it's a question of how to keep the movement going. So it's been two years, yeah. Trump's not being reinstated. Right. What are you going to do to maintain the, the, the fury well, they need the money. They need the money. They're making a lot of money, a lot of these people from it. And um, they're keeping the grift going. And all they need to do is pick a new, you know, change the enemy a little bit. And um, uh, I guess there's there's obviously so many people that still um, think that way, unfortunately. Um, and by now they've got the almost the sunken cost situation. <laughs> um where it's getting harder to admit, you know, that maybe they were wrong. Um, yeah, it ties in the, the sunk cost fallacy and um, the the apocalypse that never comes, that UFO oh, call. Yeah. Where you um, keep moving the date. <laughs> but where the, 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 the entire concept of cognitive dissonance was, was developed and introduced into the literature. Uh, it avoids cognitive dissonance. Uh, these these dates just come and go and QAnon and the prophecies and Mike Lindell. Just, 
<laughs> it's like at one point, what point do they walk away? Uh, that's where it's hard. That's where it's hard. Um, and that's where people that have expert are experts in cults and how you leave a cult, they can really help. And, um, you know, as much as we want to just say, look how stupid you are. Look, just look at the evidence. You know, that doesn't work very well. So um, I think it, it seems like, especially I do think the hearings made a difference because I heard, I saw more than one person say, um, you know, my father didn't believe any of it and he thought he'd just watch the hearing just to see what it was about. And um, he's actually changed his mind now. Um, it's just a slow process. And I think that um, Liz Cheney was really smart and she said things like, it's hard to admit your president has lied to you. It's hard to admit you're wrong. And she kind of tried to make it, I think, easy for them to um, kind of wake up. <laughs> and almost, I think, to well, I, I, almost to a fault that every witness, almost every witness was a Republican. Um, yeah, I hope too. Yeah, yeah I was definitely from inside the Trump administration, and then all these judges who were appointed by Trump, Federalist Society <laughs> judges, keep ruling against him. Right, which is nice. <laughs> it gives you a little bit of hope. Gives you a little bit of hope. <laughs> um. Yeah, my theory on that is that some of the, they know they have an asterisk next to their name. And so they're trying to, you know, make sure that they follow the law and not appear to give him any breaks. Some of them, anyway, most of them, hopefully. You know, Eileen Cannon, other possible exceptions. Hello. And so we were talking about um, the various groups. And I was curious if you thought, you mentioned the COVID denialists and the, um, the Bollingers, right? Um, yeah. Do you think there's anybody else that, that like are really bad act? I mean, we know there's been a lot of focus on Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Three Percenters. Anybody else you think? Um, like, like you said, I think that they didn't do um, a whole lot of violence, but but definitely the America First Groypers and Nick Fuentes, um, which I hear a rumor, maybe we'll hear a little more about soon, but um, I... Um, he, you know, I, from the beginning was, was um, keeping track of him and he, um, he incited really badly and really specifically and also on um, restricted grounds and also right outside, you know, saying, you know, it'd be nice if there wasn't bloodshed, but either way, let's go do it, etc. He's uh, always very, very uh, focused on killing, you know, um, talks about murdering a lot, you know, so he, and he just has very high, um, high up connections, influences, obviously. And I was a little, I was, um, it was really unfortunate that his actions there weren't known the last, during the last uh, news cycle where he met with Trump, it would have been nice. Um, but I think also, um, this is gonna seem funny, but I would actually say the Proud Boys, um, because of course a lot has been known about them, but I would say what's lacking is local coverage of the Proud Boys because they're really, really, well documented as far as local groups they have their little local logos we have spreadsheets with all of them listed and they are like i said um trying to overtake the school boards the um library events 
um, very violent, um, and almost any <laughs> any area in the country has, you know, a little proud boy group that's very easy to document. That that again, uh, especially anti-fascism and screaming at people to pay attention to these people. They're dangerous, and um, I think you know not only just saying you know this was a proud boy, saying you know this is a proud boy from this area. And this is some other stuff that those Proud Boys have done. And here's a couple others. And, and for the local reporters to start paying more attention. Right. And it's, it was Moms for Liberty, um, I believe, is, is affiliated, but doing the school board stuff. Oh, was that the one where they accidentally uh, had, the, yeah, they uh, interviewed a, either, I think, a Proud Boy's wife. Um, right. Yeah. School board and. Uh, yeah, in that area, I think they'd also interviewed uh, a proud boy himself as if he was an expert on school boards. Um, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of issues uh, with with some media and how they cover things. And there's a lot of bias, obviously, and bias slash, you know, uh, in those groups themselves, you know, of both media and law enforcement and military and that. I hope that um, after January 6th, when they see, you know, how obviously they didn't care about um, the blue, um, I hope that people are at least, um, and seeing how Michael Flanone was reacted to by some in his department, I hope that people are a little more aware of the bad eggs in the departments, which I realize are a whole lot of the departments in a lot of cases, and, and um, getting them out and getting them more accountable and, and um um, noticing that more. And we really have the, sort of the identical situation we had after 9-11 when um, there, you know, they blamed on intelligence and all that, but all the intelligence was focused on Antifa and BLM. And oh, yeah. They're talking yeah. about reforming policies and processes. You don't need to do anything. You just change the personnel because those no. are the people who made the decision to ignore this. Yes, yes and that happened this, yeah, this, this time too. It looks like they were thinking about Antifa again. Um, it's ridiculous. I mean, they, it's it's definitely a blind spot, and it's extremely dangerous to our country. Yeah, I, I believe willful um, and intentional. Yeah. And they're using Proud Boys to gather intelligence on Antifa. Oh yeah. When the yes. Proud Boys are the ones, while the Proud Boys are planning to storm the Capitol. And so I think we can expect some of that to come out at the Proud Boys trial. Yeah, that should be there. I hope there are. It needs to come out. It needs to come out because, um, yeah, enemy enemies from within. Um, yeah, there's but, no reason for that. It's absolutely ridiculous and, and, and costing lives. And the defense is going to try to make it look like, well, this is a federal insurrection, a fedsurrection. These informants <laughs> were inside. They were embedded. It's like, well, yes, but they were giving information um, supposedly on Antifa. This is not a positive defense. There's nothing exculpatory there. Um, but the government, on the other hand, it's embarrassing for them. They're using fascist gangs to inform yeah, American citizens. Well, they need to be embarrassed. Uh, a lot of people need to be embarrassed. I think all our institutions need to be embarrassed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because we should we missed a lot that we shouldn't have missed. And it's you know it's that part of it. I, I have a little, very little faith. They knew about the Saudi <laughs> connection, and instead we invaded Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. Similarly, here, right? <laughs> you know, I we, think they, we need to wait for the generations to change. So, 
it may be a while, but um, I think we're managing to fight it bit by bit. And, you know, I do have hope. <laughs> the, the kids are all right. They have great values. The kids, they are. They are. I, I almost think there should be an upper limit to age, age limits to politicians because they're often literally two generations behind um, as far as uh, their morals and, you know, their progressiveness. And it, it really is a problem. <laughs> I think soon uh, we're coming up on the, the impending publication of the committee report, and they're yes. going to have their final hearing on Monday, um, at which they will make criminal referrals. And it just came out that they've they mentioned some names of the press, Clark, Eastman, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm, Giuliani, and Meadows specifically. Mm. And I, I, would I would be curious to know who else they are looking at referrals for. Me too. Me too. I have been impressed with them. Um, of course, Edition Honor sent, sent them a lot of information too. I don't know what, how much came from us, uh, but a lot of people sent them information. But I've been very impressed that they seem to have covered a lot of the bases that are so hard to cover. Um, even if it's just a mention in a um, in one of their films, it, it, it at least says, oh, they got that, they got that, they got that. And um, I've also been impressed by how they organized it and presented it um i realized early on they were focusing on trump which I, they had to do by necessity they, they they couldn't cover everything but i think that was smart um i would love to see you know roger stone in there um love to see him um Flynn. there's plenty of others it could be you know alex jones um who knows you know i'm very excited to find out um what the, what they're saying and i the problem is that people need to act on what they say um and you know respect the people that were killed and injured and take the criminal referrals and, and do everything they could with them it's, it's um it, it's very important right there are a lot of people who are very focused on i think uh um jenny thomas which i, I think yes, is one of the areas are. where um, it's kind of a red herring, like, okay, she's, yeah. it's bad, and Clarence Thomas isn't a great justice, but there are other people who much, seem more central, you know, um, like even her yeah. donations for the buses, that was through Charlie Kirk. Let's look at Charlie yeah. Kirk. Exactly, yes. I think part of it is maybe in the past, some of these bad actors like Kirk and Fuentes, probably people didn't want to give them publicity because they are the type, like, that love all publicity. But at this point, it isn't, you know, they're getting more powerful, not less. So I think we need to just fight the bullet. Um, and even some of Fuentes's, um, some of the Groypers um, were recently arrested. And um, a lot, some of the the more Nazi disturbing stuff was not mentioned in news reports. And um, that's something that needs to stop. Right. And I, I that is just a, an interesting phenomenon that is, I think, dangerous. It's one thing I see in common. You have Gavin McInnes doing his podcasts. You have Nick Fuentes, apparently three hours a night. Um, you know, I'm, I'm do, the next episode is going to focus a, a lot on Fuentes. Yeah, I didn't know if I should mention that or not, but I'm really glad you're doing that. <laughs> but it, there's, a you know, the archive is like, oh, this is this is a lot of things. And then I look, it's like, this is like one tenth of one percent. Like <laughs> he just hates oh, the three hour yeah. hate speech every night. That's his yeah. entire life. And there are people yeah. paying him to propagandize their, their brains. Yeah. And um 
he's obviously the politicians love him. Um, yep. He reminds me of Ben Shapiro a little bit, right? This Alex P. Keaton kind of, you know, um, yeah. debating society. Um, but, I mean, the difference between him and someone like McGinnis is, you know, his followers, they'll go and they'll talk about the Holocaust and how they hate people. And yet, you know, on the day, you know, there was suit guy, right? But yes, the suit guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these are horrible people. They, you know, yep. um, are very uh, pro things like rape, you know, and um, that's not just rhetoric. Um, yeah. It'll happen in real life for some of them. And, um, and that to see um, some of the stuff report on that's tame and then the reporters to not mention the stuff that's right there that isn't is, um, dangerous now one of the weird things um i i of course lecture in american government introduction to politics and as a kind of a throwaway line for decades i've i've said district of columbia has more police agencies and law enforcement than any other city in the country and perhaps the world if you're going to do a crime don't do it in dc throwaway oh, really? line yeah, and now it's like I look back on it, like so many things in my lectures, like, oh, geez, this is oddly relevant. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I think we all support think. law enforcement, and especially in this instance, and their commitment to saving, uh, really, they were heroes uh, on January 6th. Yeah. Um, I know there's certainly plenty of, of difficult and bad issues involving police officers but that day um yeah that day i, I know that people uh kind of think they know what they went through uh they've seen you know um some of the clips of the violence um and they've heard what they had to say some of them um but i think unless you unless you studied it uh you've you don't even understand what they achieved. It's an absolute tactical miracle that more weren't killed, that um, it wasn't successful. You know, there were plenty of people, there were plenty of staffers like hiding under Nancy Pelosi's desk because they heard door trying to be kicked in, you know. Um, but they held off, they, uh, it was such a small amount of officers uh, they were almost immediately separated from their leaders and, and didn't have radio contact and then had other groups that they'd never met before all working together. Um, and it, they achieved it. They they held the people off and they saved, uh, they really did save, I think, our country and many lives. Um, and the the only way they did it is to be is that they were willing to die for it. Uh, whether they had families or not, um, it was such a difficult thing to do um, that that it wouldn't. I don't think it would have worked otherwise. They they were some of them. Um, you know, of course, some we can follow throughout the day. Um, some of them, the second they came out, they were attacked by uh, multiple 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 people at once uh, at multiple angles, um, and that one officer could have been through four hours of that um and they were injured very badly very badly men of the officers and they couldn't go for help they continued to put themselves out front and just literally let their body you know be beaten um they at the tunnel they were ordered to hold the line 
and there were people hiding very close to that and it's very good they did that um and they um achieved the the delays that were so important um but it was at great personal cost um and not only uh, they they were, some of them were severely injured and yet went right back out front over and over and over um and Another aspect that people don't really necessarily think about um, that made it even more difficult was not only was it like there could have been a two minute span where, you know, 20 different people were attacking you. But it's not just that. It's with weapons that you've never (laughs) trained against, like very weird weapons, because, of course, plenty of people brought weapons like spray, you know, um, batons, um, bats, etc., um and use them (laughs) but they also were just so rapidly violent they were ripping up everything they could to use as weapons and passing it through the crowd and using it on the officers from um things that you would never train for or even know how to defend yourself against like a a giant billboard sign um a giant speaker a roll of part a ladder um you know all kinds of just uh, a board of plywood Um, and then someone was maybe attacking you with that while a lot of other people were doing other things and so it um it is amazing what they achieved and i do think we owe um, gratitude because they paid personally uh five are dead because of it and um many 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 permanently injured um and mentally and physically um, so I do want to give a shout out to them because having seen firsthand what they achieved, um, they only achieved it because they were willing to die and willing to put themselves through that. And uh, they probably knew the whole time they were sitting ducks and, and they were really set up for it. And um, so we need to be very grateful for that. So I just wanted to give them a shout out um, for what they achieved. Absolutely. I second that. And of course, we'll never really necessarily know. Not all of them are going to want to write their biographies. Um, There are going to be people who are medically retired who we don't ever get to know their story. Um, And that happens, you know, law enforcement in many different circumstances. But I I believe the heroes of January 6th deserve a a lot of recognition and credit beyond their pensions and and a gold medal uh, for what they did for the country on that day. I just wanted to second what you had to say about law enforcement on January 6th. Everyone who responded. Um, there are people who medically retire from law enforcement every day. Um, but I, I think it's, it's important that, you know, we recognize that what happened on January 6th and that this was uh, hopefully a unique event that will not be repeated. And that we all know the law enforcement in D.C. a great debt of gratitude. Yeah. Yes, we do. I also want to thank you, Opal Cats, and the entire Sedition Hunting community for your contributions to helping to not just bring people to justice, but also really to write history here and uh, to show what actually happened in all right. of its complexity. Right. And I think that's the main focus is, is to document it for history. Yeah. And you're welcome. <laughs> okay. Well... Thanks again, and um, hopefully this will will upload okay, and we will be able to listen to it. So uh, do stay in touch, and uh, again, thank you so much for your service. 
You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me and for your podcast. Um, it is definitely going to be a part of history. <laughs> very much appreciate. We'll see. If, if all of human civilization goes down and this is the last thing that survives, it's time to oh. good. So, <laughs> this will not be the, a good basis for for a, a formation of a new society. So, well, it'll be a good warning away from our our planet. So you're right. Um, Absolutely. Do, a, do a public service to the universe at least. So thanks again. You're welcome. Have a great day. Happy holidays. All right. You too. Thanks.